This is the Grumpy PA Podcast, where we bring new Army PAs a little bit of professional development and a touch of battlefield medicine. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Grumpy PA Podcast. I'm here with Paul. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the Combat Lifesaver program and the Combat Lifesaver courses. Uh, and so, to, Paul, to be frank, man, I've been out of the out of the business for a minute. Uh, I, I still remember why CLS is important and why we're so uh, worried about this course. But it's been a hot second since uh, I've had to run one of these or know how things are going. And there's been a lot of changes lately. So uh, why don't you kind of open us up? Tell us uh, where you stand and, uh, with the CLS and what we're trying to do within the, the force structure. And then we'll kind of jump into this for our audience. Yeah, so... CLS is one of those pet projects that, you know, really is a battalion PA you need to be pressuring and, and putting a lot of emphasis on. Um, my personal view on CLS is, is that this is the most important thing that you're going to do, right? Training your medics is great. Making sure your medics are good to go is, is fantastic. However, most of your guys aren't going, you know, when when the, the poop hits the fan and, and you guys are seeing casualties, the first guy that's going to be there, the guy who's probably going to save someone's life isn't going to be your medic. It's not going to be your PA. It's not going to be doc. It's going to be the guys in the trench and, and at the line. And if they don't know what they're doing, if that's the first time that they're seeing um, like medical trauma, they're going to lose their, their minds and they're not going to really be able to help their buddy. So one of the best things that you can do is prepare them and they're hungry for it, man. When you get down and you start teaching those 11 Bravos or I mean, hell, even the band geeks that I was working with back at Fort Hood, they loved CLS, man. Like they were so into it. And if you really stress them out and got them feeling that it was real training, they loved the CLS training. Um, I beat them up a little bit. And at the end of the week, they, they were telling me how it was some of the best training that they've ever had. And, and they were grateful for it because, again, they understand that that they need to be ready to, to treat their buddies and, and take care of the casualties and that it's not going to be doc. It's not going to be the medic. Um, so that's the most important thing that you guys can do. And, and I think that a little bit of provider emphasis is something that's, um, you know, needed, uh, getting guys out of the clinic, you know, as a PA, I gave up a week of clinic. I, I ate that bullet, um, and went and sat there and did the whole CLS course with these guys every time. And, you know, I wasn't running it every month, uh, but I would go and sit and I was available for the CLS course to provide that extra training and emphasis. I did a lot of the same thing and there's nothing more telling than when you sit down and you're doing your medical sticks lanes with your medics and you provide them some extra hands, some, some non 68 whiskey medics, uh, to, to be the extra hand. So right, you bring in the 11 Bravos or you run it as like a squad sticks lane or a platoon sticks and, uh, the medics busy working away and everybody wants to help. And if they, they've had good COS training, they're right there, you know, adding to the capability of the medic to get stuff done, taking care of the nine line medevac or prepping the litter or getting supplies out of the bags and all those kind of things. And you can definitely tell the units that don't. Cause when, uh, when that happens, there's just a lot of people standing around watching the medic tear his hair out working on a critically ill patient. And uh, obviously we'd rather learn that lesson in garrison as opposed to uh, at, at bedside at the point of injury. Um, but plenty of units do learn that that way. And so I think that's a great point. You also bring up uh, there, you know, taking a, taking the time out of clinic. Like we, we know it's, it's so hard for you to get out of clinic. This is where you got to spend some money though. And uh, I agree with you. I did everything I could to be at the COS courses, I also try to kind of preserve for my NCOs, you know, they're like the, the lead, they're the trainer for this. It's the, it's the medics teaching the COS, but you're the subject matter expertise and kind of the owner of the TC3 and the standard. And if you're in a unit that uh, doesn't know how to train well, right, they don't do the moulaging, they don't, they don't actually drive it, uh, the consumption of class eight and the doing and, 
you know, training like you fight, yeah, that becomes so critically important to make sure that your NCOs that are teaching the combat lifesaver course uh, have those concepts down and embrace them and make the, the, the realistic training because otherwise you just end up with a CLS program that is uh, promotion points for people that want to go to the board. It's PowerPoint slideshows, and it's just it's not getting to what they need, what the medic needs for trained people to help with the casualties. And so um, 100% agree with you in all regards there. You got to have people that get it, that train well, and and train collectively as a team towards an objective in those uh, those critical skills. Yeah, so this is something that you mentioned. You've been out of the game for a while. So DHA has taken over, and the world is changing, and this is definitely one of the things that they've, they've affected uh, so it used to be that every station had their own first responder course. They called it whatever they wanted to. You know, here at Fort Hood, they called it Pegasus First Responder. Uh, I'm sure it was named something else everywhere else you went. Um, and it came down to an issue with um, guys were credentialed to be instructors at their duty station and, and say, I got a new guy here at Fort Hood a month ago. Uh, and, and he did his Pegasus or his version of first responder the month before at his prior duty station. When he got to Fort Hood, they would kind of give it a wash and say, well, it doesn't really count. It doesn't matter. You got to go through our course because ours is different. Um, and so DHA has streamlined and simplified that process, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, and the way that they do that is is through a centralized data bank through the deployed medicine website. So here now at Fort Hood, they go through their Pegasus. It's still called Pegasus First Responder, but it, it's run by uh, the Mystic and DHA. Um, and so they go through this one week CLS instructor course, which is where they're for all uh, practical purposes, they're assistant instructors for the CLS course run by the Mystic. Um, at the end of that, they take an instructor test through the Deployed Medicine website, uh, and that total gives them their Pegasus First Responder or CLS instructor uh, credentialing. Um, the idea being that they could then go on to uh, anywhere else within the country and be a CLS instructor there without having to redo the whole process, which was just asinine and wasted a bunch of people's time. Um, that deployed medicine website also provides you with the framework for your courses. It gives you uh, the PDF uh, PowerPoint presentations that can be modified that give you, you know, that basic template. Uh, the end of the course for your students, they will take a written and a hands-on exam the written test is through the deployed medicine website. Uh, you do, you know, lesson learned uh, <laughs> the hard way here for us is that you have to request a uh, testing code uh, through the mystic and that code takes a couple of days to get. So uh, you need a verified roster of, of participants that you can submit to the mystic to get that code for um, and really, if you can do it the week before, that will streamline your process. Uh, we had one course where we we did it on uh, we we got the list on Monday, and we kind of had people who fall, fell off of the the roster, or and we gained some new ones, and so it became a challenge for us to get that testing code for the the written portion uh, in that week long process before we were you know before we needed to be able to test them. That deployed medicine website uh, has the references. Once your students are enrolled, they actually have access to that later on and they can review and refresh uh, the material anytime they want to. Uh, and it provides them with that framework, that CLS. Uh, it also gives your instructors there the, the algorithm, the testing algorithm 
for the actual hands-on portion as well. That way you're you're up to the standard and you can be teaching from that algorithm from the beginning. That way they know exactly what's coming and they can kind of prepare for it. I'll throw into our show notes here for our listeners uh, the the link to the, the deployed medicine website as well. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to tell you what we used to do before. It was, it was kind of similar, except that computers and the internet weren't quite as cool when I first kind of came around. So it was a lot of books coming in the mail, but uh, centralized repository. And I think one of the things that you point out there that's intriguing is these these other programs, right? These first responder programs, like you mentioned Pegasus. And I remember, uh, you know, the range of first responders, probably the, the, the genesis for a lot of those. And and really what that concept was is is grabbing the CLS course and then augmenting it up to the unit's needs and capabilities. And I think, unfortunately, some places maybe grabbed a hold of it and then they just superseded CLS and kind of departed from it. Um, rather than forcing CLS to update up to what it ought to be. And so uh, I think we, we've been talking a little bit before recording this episode, kind of what the content of the CLS course is, but we'll talk about it here in a second. And I wonder, you know, where does it fit? Uh, is it all the way up to date with kind of the cutting edge of what you need for your medics? You know, can, can somebody graduating out of the CLS course uh, help out drawing fresh whole blood for the medic who's like, can they, can they activate a walking blood bank at point of injury and have an 11 Bravo or a group of 11 Bravos just start grabbing people and screening them according to the standards we need, according to the CPGs, and then start handing the medic fresh whole blood. Um, and I suspect that that's probably not the case. And CLS will forever be a couple steps behind, and there will be need for an individual provider to grab a hold of the CLS uh, stuff and figure out how am I going to augment or add on to um, and so having a good solid program from DHA centralized repository, like what you're describing is fantastic. And then, and then having the augmentation of a subject matter expert, like your battalion PA, your battalion surgeon come in and, and know where to go. That's uh, that's critical. So, um, how do, how do you see that fitting in? Like, what does that template currently look like compared to what you know that our non-medical folks need to be able to do for the medic at point of injury? So typical uh, course load for us, we ran it and it's, it's a one week, 40 hour block. Um, within that block, you know, there is a PowerPoint, there's a curriculum that they provide to you. Um, and the easiest way that we found to run it was make, get those PowerPoints out of the way up front, right? So you break it into your chunks, um, guys would come in around zero eight. We would run them through the PowerPoints and make sure that they've got everything until about 11 o'clock, uh, cut them loose for some lunch and then have them come back. And when they came back, they were kitted up and they, they had all of their equipment. They were running with rubber duckies, um, which you're able to request from, uh, there's a, there's a base supply that has rubber ducks that you can check out and they have mannequins and everything along those lines. Quick commercial break real real quick here while uh, Paul's talking about the TSCs in this place where you can get this equipment. Uh, so this training support center, this is the warehouse where they're going to have all kinds of training aids for you. Anything from mannequins through weapon simulators, AT4s, RPGs. They have uniforms for op for They have graphic training aids for anything you can imagine. Generally, I would encourage every single PA uh, to go out there and see this. Like, grab your platoon sergeant and COIC, go out and see the TSC, see what they have to offer you. Uh, no one will ever be able to do it justice explaining to you all the stuff they have. It's better for you just go over there with them and, and show moulage kits galore, you name it. You're going to just see pallets and pallets full of all kinds of training support aids. And what you're going to have to do is get it. Your, someone in your section or from the medics is going to have to be on the commander's signature card to go over there and be authorized to sign out equipment uh, to the commander's account. 
uh, on a temporary loan basis. And so um, I encourage you get over there and check it out. It's called the TSC. Every camp has one. Every base has one. Sorry, most. Um, it formerly was called the TASC. And so get out there and check that out. It's very important uh, to help understand how you can resource your own internal training. All right. Now back to Paul talking about the his training on the afternoons. So we would run lanes all afternoon and, and it was a walk to run progression. Medics would demonstrate everything and make sure that, you know, the guys understood what they were being asked to do. Uh, but the biggest thing is we would sit there and, and, and everybody says they do it. And nobody does it right. Realistic training uh, and then train to train to standard, not train to time. So those guys were out there in full kit and they were running those lanes uh, every afternoon uh, in the full sun here in Texas and until they were sweating and dying. And I, you know, I had a cooler full of water just to make sure nobody was going to go down and I bought them some Gatorade just to make them happy. Uh, but I'll tell you, like we beat them up a little bit that first day. We actually, you know, we were running uh, lanes with tourniquets and we were smoking the guys and in full kit. They were they were getting beat up and there was some whining and there was some complaining. And I got called by the battalion sergeant major. I got called by the battalion commander. Like, or what are you doing to my guys? And at the end of the course, I'll tell you their mindset. Actually, the next day, right? So there was whining and complaining on Monday. On Tuesday, those guys were in it. They were invested. They believed in the course and they believed in the training. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll get into some problems here uh, with CLS courses that we've seen. But uh, the biggest thing that I've seen is is that death by PowerPoint and, and people not believing in the training. Um, so that typical outline, we run it Monday through Thursday. We're running PowerPoints in the morning. We're doing uh, hands-on practical in the afternoon. On Thursday, they would take their hands-on written test, um, and then Friday morning, we would try to test them out real quick on the, the uh, I'm sorry, Thursday was the uh, written exam through the DHA. We just scheduled with the local library, and then on Friday morning, we would run them through uh, hands-on, and then we would schedule with the Mystic. So here at, the, at Fort Hood, our Mystic has a big obstacle course, uh, and they have a, a little paintball shoot house with lights and sounds and smell generators that can make the room smell like poo. All right. Second commercial interruption here is uh, Paul's talking about the mystics. Uh, all the big core level bases have a, a very, very nice and well-funded mystic. So for, uh, JBLM, Fort Bragg, uh, Fort Hood all have great ones. There are also, they're scattered around all kinds of other places too, major National Guard and Reserve mobilization bases. I can't give you a list of where they are exactly. I think I've seen a map once where they're posted uh, where you can find these types of mystics. I know I visited one at a reserve component uh, mobilization center at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. It was gorgeous. I was blown away with all the stuff they had. I was like, man, if I can get my active duty medics up here training, uh, this would be amazing. And actually now doing a little coordination with some folks that are in the vicinity of Fort McCoy, and we're probably going to utilize it. And had I not seen it and understood just how robust it was, it wouldn't be on my list of things to think about. So think about that. Those mystics really give you a wonderful place to train and take a look at them. Okay, here's back to Paul. It's it's a warehouse that's filled with sand and has trucks and uh, they have flashing strobe lights and they play music everywhere. And, and it's it's a, a dark and stressful and smoky environment. And so that's a non-testable thing, but it allows the guys to run through their uh, skills and, and see what it's like with the additional stresses of uh, having outside factors, you know, getting shot at with paintballs and having to communicate and work in a team versus running their individual sticks lane. Um, the other thing that I would recommend doing is live tissue training is, is a contentious subject and it's hard for uh, hard to set up. 
Um, I use dead tissue a, a fair amount. So silly things like go to the butcher shop, buy a rack of ribs, or if you want to be cheap, which is what I am, I buy uh, some pork belly uh, and I take some dowel and I, I make simulated ribs um, and then take a glove uh, like a medical glove, blow it up, tie it off so it's a balloon, put a piece of tape over there to increase the surface tension, lay the ribs that you've made on top of that, and then you can actually have guys do needle Ds um, through simulated rib tissue, uh, and you're getting a whoosh. Like You actually can hear that, you can feel that, you can have that coming through the catheter. Um, that little piece of tape is critical, though, because otherwise you're going to get a boom and not a whoosh. Uh, it provides just enough tension to the, to the glove uh, to keep it from from exploding on you and, and allows you to get that whoosh back instead you know that actual response I agree you know those are those are difficult things right and so again you're as you mentioned you're talking about taking 11 Bravo and then suddenly turning them into a a, uh, a an augmented super medic assistant and uh, that's hard um, there's a template out there for success for sure I think that anybody would you talk to and get into the range of first responder programs or when you talk about how like an SF team cross trains you know the 18 Delta is not the only one that understands uh, how to get an injured person off an objective and, and how to treat them appropriately in that process. But there is, there's, there is that template, right? There's the, the, it's possible. It's just difficult. And so I guess what I would tell the, the new PA coming out of school is um, the CLS is a fantastic backbone for where you're headed. It gives you the opportunity to hang some promotion points on some of your soldiers and also get them started down the pathway, but it's not all encompassing and it's not the end. It can't be the end of the road, right? It's got to be, that's kind of a pathway to starting the process. And then you kind of have to figure out, well, how are you going to augment it? And I would caution any new PA out there that, you know, you can, you can definitely do the thing and help start recreating the wheel all over again, just like all the other PAs ahead of you. Um, or you can use the CLS as the backbone and use uh, mechanisms to to look at where you're going to augment it and build it into your training plan, which is what I would recommend. And uh, it sounds like that's what you have been doing. And I, I, it sounds like uh, successfully to the ca uh, capability that you're able to. And so um, do that, you know, by all means, like you'd start with the CLS and then figure out where you're going to go from there to, to continue to grow that through whether it's sticks training in your unit. Uh, incorporating all the stuff we talked about in previous episodes where the, the where TC3 comes from, you know, training doesn't end until the casualties are off the objective. Well, that's where you're testing it. That's where you're putting your COS into action and using that additional training time to kind of build that that capability, whether it's criking, whether it's it's effectively calling in nine lines, whether it's getting the HPMKs set up and ready so that when the medic rolls the patient, that you're sliding a an evacuation platform under them that with, with hypothermia prevention already packaged and ready to go. All those little things that are those little tasks that, um, as you know, at point of injury, just make your life that much easier when someone else is helping cognitively offload and physically offload tasks for you so that you can focus on the patient uh, at critical. So. Yeah, so straight up, CLS is a, a great starting place, and, and this curriculum is, is fantastic, but it, it's a 40-hour course. It's one week, and I'll tell you that it's very difficult to get your 11 Bravos, your, your you know, I even had some band geeks uh, that at the end of the course, they were good. They were able to run a, a March scenario. They were able to get tourniquets on. Uh, but we, it was a stretch to even get that one week, right? Like there was still some improvement that could be made um, as, as far as where they were at. Uh, at, at the end of a week. Um, now, are these guys going to be running your blood program? Are they going to be able to help out? Are they drawing units of blood? No, that, that's not even uh, a question. You know, there's, there's no uh, cricothyroidotomy um, 
support, right? Like they couldn't assist a medic in that necessarily. But what they are is they're really good at doing tourniquets and they're really good at placing chest seals and, and, and doing those needle decompressions. Um, so this is something that is a continuum. Uh, this is something that's a, a great initial training but you're going to need to continue this and you're going to need to uh, further these guys along. This is not a course that's designed, uh, at least from the, the current DHA standpoint, to be providing fresh whole blood or, or doing those procedural um, procedures during during a trauma. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I, I agree with you. I love what you're talking about. I'll throw a couple caveats to you. One, um, where I am now, we're actually, we're not at, at big risk of, um, you know, being out on patrolling and having a point of injury type of event. Our biggest threat here is uh, like an IDF event. Uh, and so, and on our camp. And so our CLS program here, we've, we've executed a few courses here in theater, and uh, that is focused on um, doing it in an IDF scenario. So they basically, they could drag them to the bunker, get them care under fire, tactical field care. They do all their interventions inside the bunker, and then they start working evac, uh, to a casualty collection point that's built into the base defense plan and, and the, the response plan. So, uh, that's critical. So whatever your program is, once you get into a place where you're actually likely to take casualties, rehearse it, use it as a training opportunity. You know, you can call it CLS training, call it whatever the hell you want, but effectively you're doing a casualty response rehearsal and dig it uh i'll be using your little glove technique here it's not one i had heard of before and i'm gonna absolutely i'll be using that tomorrow when i'm training with medics uh going down that route but um the, everything else you talked about i loved as well I'll, I'll never forget the lesson of pack your aid bag and and force the medic to get it out uh better than the time that i didn't check my aid bag and i went to intubate a a patient and didn't have an endotracheal tube and so i ended up uh using a, 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 a nasogastric, uh, or, or sorry, not a nasogastric, but a nasopharyngeal airway to actually intubate with. That's not preferred. It's not, it wasn't necessarily the most effective thing, but it was what I had in my aid bag and the lesson was learned. Uh, you can't, you can't, you, you can't bullshit the, where is it in my bag and get it out and then fiddle, fiddle with it with blood or sticky fluid all over your hands and have to open it. And uh, so I, I'm totally down with that. Um, with the class eight, burning the class eight, man, I think that I have never run into a unit that had a problem producing that class eight if you inhibited the, the mechanism by which they throw away expired class eight. <laughs> so usually you can just be like, stop throwing it away and put it over here in this corner and usually end up with a pile and pile and pile of class eight to that you can use. Obviously uh, I encourage um, using like, you know, if you're going to give an IV and you say you're going to pretend drugs, like I, I give you normal saline. Um, and so just be cautious with that. If, if, you're going to take that pathway that I take. You can't use expired normal saline and training and those kind of things. Like don't, don't get in that habit. And you have to set up some safety mechanisms to inhibit that kind of stuff. But otherwise all the expired class eight is perfect for training with it's in its original packaging and it serves a great purpose to pack the aid bag the way it's designed to be and force the medic into that. And then likewise for the CLS, it packed the CLS bag the way it's designed to be Force the kid to go into it, find it, find out how it's packed and whether the stuff they're looking for is in it because there's there's nothing more uncomfortable than needing something and not knowing where it is or knowing where it's supposed to be and finding it not there. So um, with all that said, man, uh, common problems you run into teaching CLS, maybe you want to tell your colleagues about. So the, the initial problem that I have with these kids is that they don't want to be there. Right. Like they think that this is a, a, a pencil pencil drill because all of the CLS or not all of 
some of them have come from other units that have done CLS training. And when they do CLS training, a, a lot of the times it's PowerPoint and they're just clicking through the slides. Um, there might be some very basic rudimentary hands-on skills where they're like, here, throw on a tourniquet or, or you know, and they, they show you some, some basic stuff. Um, they let you play with the stuff a little bit, but, but you really, these guys need to buy into it. They need to understand that, that they are the one who's going to save their buddy. They are the one who's going to be there for, for their teammate when that day comes. Um, so if you can find a way to get them to buy in, that's huge. Um, don't fall into the trap of, of CLS as a PowerPoint check the block because you need to push 60 CLS through so that you can get uh, them certified for the requirement, right? So the, the Army Doctrine, I think it's one CLS per vehicle uh, and your battalion commander, or your XO is going to push for that pretty hard at some point if they even know about that requirement uh, and, and understand that. But once they, they know about it, they're going to want to push as many guys through. And so you, you fall into this quick trap of uh, pencil whipping your, your CLS training and, and making sure the guys are paper qualified so that they can cover you for ranges and you're not providing a, a medic to a CLS or to a uh, five, five, six range, which can be covered by a CLS. Um, the other big one is not training with equipment, right? So, so guys will run these courses and they're not wearing kit. They're not uh, wearing gloves. They don't have their helmets on. They're not in, you know, a, a, they don't have a rubber ducky. So making sure that it's as realistic as possible and that they have all of their, their stuff that they would have downrange and that they would be fighting in. Um, those are the biggest problems that I have. And then obviously the one that, that we're all going to fight and it's never going to go away is the time suck of not giving the time to, to CLS and not being there as the provider um, for at least part of the training. So my week typically consisted of, uh, you know, I'd, I'd still try to run sick call in the morning. Uh, I'd get over to the uh, to the training site around eight o'clock and then I would be there. Right. And I, I would be available for questions. My NCOs, obviously, this is run by them. So if I was a few minutes late, it wasn't a big deal. They were still the ones directing the, the training and making sure that everything was good to go. Uh, and then the last problem that I, I saw was guys not using class eight. Right. So, um, you know, if that means using actual chest seals, right? So there's there's plenty of expired equipment laying around. Uh, and if you, for whatever reason, don't have any expired equipment, the hospital or the mystic can get it for you. Um, but, you know, things like chest seals. So you can use chest seals uh, a couple of different times or, you know, the worst case scenario, buy a, a roll of moleskin and cut out circle shapes. The reason for that is is maintaining that hands hand-eye coordination and, and understanding that, you know, it sucks to put a chest seal or using gloves and, and your hands are wet and slippery. It sucks to get a chest seal off the backing. Um, it sucks to put a chest seal onto a patient's uh, hair or sweaty chest and they, they don't stick very well or, or there's extra steps. So making sure that you're using legitimate class eight uh, would be the, the kind of the final final thing that I would say you need to deal with. Uh, but yeah, so my my NCOs ran our training program. Uh, I gave them input. I kind of gave them that feedback of what I wanted to see, which was, uh, you know, hands-on training as involved as possible, making sure that these guys aren't just sitting behind the computer watching, watching you drone on about CLS stuff. Um, I went down and, and gave kind of my spiel about why I love CLS to the, to the students. Uh, and I think that that's something that needs to be continued you know guys don't understand that they are the ones they think doc's going to save them and, and they don't understand that doc's not going to be around all the time so making sure that they understand that um 
not using the available training resources at your uh, duty station. So again, the, the Fort Hood Mystic is fantastic. It's easy to schedule with. You just call uh, the guy who runs it and tell him what you want to do, and he will make sure that they can support you. And if they can't do it that day, they'll do it another day, right? Like They are 100% um, there to, to be involved in, in training everyone. And they're an underutilized resource. You know, I, I talk to those guys and they say that they get very few requests for training. Uh, they're running half of the courses that they think they could run and they have a robust staff. You know, the, the, the budget for the, the mystics is astronomical across the army. Um, and it's a fantastic program and they have the equipment, they have the space, they have the dedicated trainers, so use them, use them to augment your programs. Um, and if you can't run a program, they have their own that they're running as well. Uh, and so get down there and watch how they're doing their programs. And then maybe you can bring some of those lessons back to your unit and to run your own programs. Have you seen anything else out there? No, man, I, I like what you're talking about there. You know, just to summarize the, the problems that you you did are the same ones that we all tend to run in, right? Getting buy-in is critical. Like, that, that, you know, this isn't like the sergeant major or or the, the commander is like, I want to have 50% of my people CLS certified before this big inspection. Like, I, it can't be that. You have to you have to be the driving force, and you're the owner as the battalion PA and your senior medic. You're the owner of this being a priority to the battalion and convincing them of, of its importance. So, so own that. And then right behind that, like you mentioned, COS can't be a check to block. It's not PowerPoint. So own that with your NCO. Don't let it turn into that. If, if that's what your unit is running, then you you now know what task you need to, to focus on. That that needs to be become a, a critical priority for you. Training like you fight, you, you and I will sing it until the, 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 the cows come home that you got to train like you fight. And if you're not, it's just don't get it. Um, other things that that um, I tried to do is just try to incorporate the importance all the way along the way. You know, we talked about you're doing platoon sticks training. Cool, that's fine. It's got to get the the medic the medic or the, the casualty has to come off the objective uh, in the sticks before you stop training. But you can incorporate this into PT time. You know, like a, the, the everyone comes back from PT, they're getting ready to break, and maybe ten minutes early, you're like, boom, casualty COS, jump into action, and you just drop a couple COS bags and have a medic stand fifty feet away, and the medic's not allowed to come help. You have to bring the patient to the the medic appropriately treated care and fire tactical field care from the COS perspective. And that, that just focuses, gives those rehearsal opportunities. However you can work those rehearsals and whatever works for you, um, get them going and, and get that buy-in. But um, overall, the, the COS, as you, as you mentioned, is absolutely critical. Units that the, the, the survivability of your patients is built around whether or not people take seriously the, the thought that they might be the only one there to do the, the self-aid buddy aid. Uh, and get the person to an appropriate disposition. And that that's the program that we have for that is COS. And it's augmented by those first responder programs. Um, but it, they really, it's all driven towards everything we're still talking about. So, All right, guys, I think that about wraps it up for us uh, this month. So remember, CLS, to me, this is probably the most important thing that you're going to do for your unit. Because um, again, you know, you've got limited medics, you've got limited doc, you've got limited PA. They're not going to be there please, please, please go back to your units and try to crush this at your unit and, and get those guys invested in CLS and making sure that the command teams are, are supportive of, of medical training across the battalion. Uh, Grumpy, it was good talking with you. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you guys again next month.
Just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, the Grumpy PA and Pandemic Paul are just a couple of Army PAs giving you their opinions. Those opinions are not intended to represent the positions of the Department of Defense or the Department of the Army, and neither of us have any financial disclosures to make to you about what we've discussed in the podcast today.